Hey, Scotty, word up. Francis put on a game face as he went over to greet the video tech setting up a tripod over the trench. Not the same old, same old, eh, Francis? said Scott Ferguson, a big, bluff, ponytailed guy from the visual evidence unit who was always handing out business cards trying to get weekend work filming weddings, bar mitzvahs, and christenings. Usually when you put them down, they stay down. Abso-fucking-lutely. Normally, he ran into Scotty only at crime scenes, when there was literally still blood on the walls. So what's up? said Scotty. I tried to ask Paul, but he said this is your clam bake. Did he now? Francis looked across the grave where Paul Rado, his erstwhile friend, the prosecutor, was having an animated discussion with a lady from the M.E.'s office, pointing his way every few seconds, trying to reassign the blame, no doubt. Four members of the gravediggers' union stood by in their green uniforms, leaning on picks and shovels, waiting to do the more exacting work of digging around the coffin. Well, he told me one thing, Scotty admitted. He said it's the fucking weirdest case he ever heard of. Don't believe the hype. Well, I don't know what the hell else you'd call it. Girl's dead twenty years and her blood shows up on another body last week? Sounds like fucking Paul told you plenty. Francis glared into the mid-distance. The backhoe grunted and rocked on its stabilizers as little brown plumes wafted from the gouge, drizzling dust on the people nearby. Francis took some small measure of satisfaction in seeing Paul cough and try to brush the grit off his lapels. "'So what's up with that?' asked Scotty. "'You got the wrong girl buried?' "'That's what her mother thinks,' said Francis, remembering how he'd stood on this very spot with Eileen Wallace— a hand on her arm to keep her from jumping in back in 83. I'm trying to keep an open mind. And what about the guy you locked up for it? Paul said he was in the can 20 years. He's not the happiest horse in the race, but what are you going to do? I still got one eye on him. Everybody did something. The machine kept digging. Each chuff of metal into soil, another dig to his solar plexus, another reminder that something had gone wrong on his watch. The doctor brings you into the world, the undertaker signs you out, and if something goes wrong in between, you call a cop. He might have his lapses, but if you needed someone to get you from crime scene to the grave, he always figured he was the man for the job. Not necessarily to comfort the bereaved the way a priest or a funeral director would, just to keep the game honest. But now he felt like he'd let down his people. He was supposed to be their representative, their public servant, their envoy, a politician for the dead. Who else was going to make sure their needs got met? Who else was going to twist arms, make phone calls, knock on doors, and filibuster on their behalf? Who else was supposed to speak up and fight for these constituents? So do I smell a lawsuit in the wind, or is somebody burning incense? Scotty sniffed. Chinese funeral up the hill. Francis pointed with his half-singed bill to where a bell was softly chiming, joss sticks were fuming, and a monk in saffron robes was leading the family in chanting. They pay people to come or something? Nah. He stuck the bill in his pocket. It's hell money. Say what? Hell money. Spending cash for the afterlife. You let the dead go hungry, they might come back and haunt you. Maybe you ought to toss it in there instead. The tech nodded as one of the gravediggers looked down into the pit and gave a thumbs up. Somebody's getting an attitude. Might be a little late for that already, said Francis.
Slowly the steel claw retracted, and the men climbed into the hole with their picks and shovels, ready to start separating the casket from the dirt. Part 1 In a Little Room 1983 1 Time was in a cage. A yellowing bull of a clock was a hatchwork of thin silver bars across its face. The boy sat in the cinder-block room as fragile as an egg in a carton, staring out into space, the needle of the second hand jerking in tiny increments above him. A red and white tie was knotted at his throat, and a green book bag sat by his feet. His long eyelashes fluttered, and a wispy, virginal mustache, no thicker really than the hair on his arms, twitched on his upper lip. He looked more like twelve than seventeen. Too chicken-chested to have done the kind of damage they were talking about. Nine of the fourteen bones in the girl's face had been shattered, leaving just a pulpy maw between her hairline and lower jaw. They couldn't even use dental records to identify her. Her brother did the ID based on a mole on her thigh. The mother couldn't bear to look. There was minor vaginal bruising, but what disturbed Francis X more for some reason was the injury to her right eye. Something had pierced the lid, spilling the aqueous humor that had made the iris blue. Eloy are up yet? Francis watched the boy through the one-way glass. Now, but he's thinking about it, said his sergeant, Jerry Cronin. He's no dope, this kid. The boy's fingernails drummed on the wooden tabletop, a little lopsided rumba beat. Hearing the echo in the empty room, though, he stopped and stared into space again, vaguely aware of being observed. His slender shoulders rose and fell in his maroon parochial school blazer, sagging with the weight of accumulating time, two small red scabs on his chin plainly visible. Sully get anything out of him? You know, Sully. The sergeant made a hissing sound. He was a small, tight man, rapidly becoming smaller and tighter. He's got a touch as soft as John Henry. He came on hard and tried to put the fear of God in the kid. It was mutually decided another approach was needed. So you given me the keys or putting me in the rumble seat? You're getting the keys. With conditions. Yeah? Grown-ups are watching. Francis saw the bosses gathering in the office down the hall like crows on a phone wire. Al Barber, his father's friend from the first Depp's office, talking to Robert the Turk McKernan himself, the chief of the department. No longer creatures of the street, but products of administration. Reflexes dulled, bodies thickened, eyes shrinking as they became more adept at spotting threatening memos than concealed weapons. Francis locked eyes with McKernan for a half-second before the chief closed the door. You don't like me, the Turk. Of course he don't like you, the sergeant said, shrugging. Two years out of narcotics, eighteen months off the farm. Get the fuck out of here. You wouldn't even be standing here if it wasn't for your old man. But I told him honestly, the kid's a fucking great detective. I reminded him you got the Harlem Mirror shooter, and the one threw that little girl off the roof. I said, you put Francis in a room with the guy, he's gonna give it up. Best interrogator I've ever seen. Great natural talent. Like Mantle hitting a baseball or Pavarotti singing opera. We got people talking over each other to tell them what they did. So he said all right? Fuck no, said the sergeant. He still wants you out of here. 
But Barber and me ganged up on him, and the old man put in a good word. You get one shot. Thanks, Sarge. Don't thank me. You make me look bad, you will rue the fucking day, my friend. The sergeant tugged his sleeve. Francis, one other thing. What? Sully never got around to reading him his rights. Bosses are a little concerned, Julian being seventeen and all. I'll dance around Miranda like Fred Astaire. Francis brushed past him, picking up a black canvas bag and putting his game face on, not letting on the fact he was bothered. Why, just because the story had led the news for two days running? Just because the mayor and the police commissioner had already both given press conferences? Just because everyone was acting as if he, Francis X. Laughlin of Black Rock Avenue in the Bronx, would be personally responsible for a third of the city's tax base relocating to the suburbs if the killer wasn't caught by this weekend? Just because this was his best shot at turning things around after his little stint in rehab? Just because he'd met with the girl's family and personally promised he'd do right by them? Just because the old man had interceded on his behalf and would probably be up here any minute, looking over his shoulder? He stepped into the interrogation room and the door closed behind him with a cool, unnerving clunk. What are you reading? Julian Vega looked up from the book he'd pulled out of his bag, like a fawn peering out from behind a thicket, and then shyly raised the futuristic-looking silver and black cover of a book called Childhood's End. Arthur C. Clarke. What is that, like, science fiction? It's the third time I've read it. Julian looked sheepish. It's not the greatest writing, but every time I understand it a little better. What's it about? Francis eased himself into a higher seat across the table, knowing the bosses were lining up on the other side of the glass, ready to second-guess him. The overlords. The boy's voice was too husky for his scrawny-ass